Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and I care a lot about I care a lot, which is why it is the subject of our latest spoiler special podcast. Oh, yes, indeed. Welcome to the I care a lot spoiler special, and joining me to delve deep. Well, deep-ish, as I have to leave in about 35 minutes or so, into Jay Blakeson's None More Black comedy, are Helen O'Hara. Hello. And Empire's very own Marla Grayson, which is meant to be a compliment. Uh, But I realise now, in hindsight, that it might have already all gone wrong. Uh, Our fearless leader, Terry White. Welcome. Uh Oh my fucking Christ. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be good. I think we all know who I am. I am Mrs. Peter Dinklage. (laughs) Mrs. Peter Dinklage. I am Peter Dinklage's mother, just to be clear. I am Jennifer Pete. I am Jennifer Peterson. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Diane, Diane Wiest. Mm, I said Diane Feast when I interviewed Rosamund Pike. I've never pronounced it that way before. I just panicked (laughs) and went with a Diane Feast. But, you know. Every time you say that, I want to do that line from uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine where he's going on about, I've got a Wiest infection. Because <laughs> he's so excited by seeing a Diane Wiest film. And now it's in my head. I'm sorry to Ms. Wiest. I think she's wonderful. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, Help. she is. She's tremendous and terrifying in this movie. And we'll get into it in a second. But first, let's listen to the man who made this film possible. The writer, director of I Care A Lot, Mr. Jay Blakes. And I caught up with him on Squadcast recently. And we had a good old time. We were meant to natter for about 30 minutes. We ended up chatting for about an hour. So we got into it, the whole kit and caboodle. Uh, so here we go, me talking to Jay Blakeson. Do please enjoy! We're delighted to be joined on this I Care A Lot spoiler special by the film's writer and director, Jay Blakeson. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I'm not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, all the better for seeing your, your sunny, uplifting <laughs> knockabout <laughs> comedy. <laughs> I care a lot. I thought this film was absolutely terrific. And um, what we like to do in these big old spoiler special podcasts is I like to get the big question out of the way first, which is System Addict by Five Star. How did that make it into your movie? Uh, I mean, I was a fan of it when I was a kid and we were mm-hmm. trying to find something that uh, at that moment in the film, she's Marla's sort of at her lowest ebb. And, you know, I always kind of feel like what what is sort of the kind of tune when you walk into somewhere where you feel kind of awful that is going to get into your head and stay there all day. Uh, and sometimes it's like a tune you really love, but like there's, you, you end up humming it all day uh, yeah. through, through your terrible day. Um, and so, you know, it just felt like Systematic was a great a great song that we could put there. And hopefully a whole new generation of people will discover Systematic by Five Star because it's a, it's a bona fide uh, good song. It is. It's a hit. It's a huge, huge hit. Yeah, I too loved that song when I was a kid. And I think it's the first time I've ever detected Five Star in a movie. Maybe this is going to be the start of a Five Star renaissance. Who knows? Well, we can only hope. You know? <laughs> we can only hope. Um, there are lots of big plot stuff that I wanted to get into in I Care A Lot. But before we do, I, I kind of wanted to delve a little bit into your writing process and how you approached this movie. And at what point for you this film morphed in a way? Because the film does morph. It morphs from a blackly comedic character study of of Marla, who is, not to put too fine a point on it, the worst person in the world. And then it becomes this really dark again black the comedic but a really dark thriller almost a revenge thriller as well was that always the idea or at what point did that begin to coalesce for you 
well, I wish Marlow was the worst person in the world. Unfortunately, the world is full of terrible people, and a lot of them do worse things than Marlow. I mean, she's not breaking any laws. The people who make the laws that allow her to do that, I think, are probably more culpable. Um, yeah. So... I think, you know, when I heard about the subject of like these guardians um, doing this scam, I was reading about it from the victim's point of view. And it, it kind of felt like, you know, the, the, the most obvious way of doing it and sort of the, the, the first instinct to do it was to do it as almost like an expose. I mean, sort of do like the Ken Loach version, I guess, which isn't really mm-hmm. in my DNA to do. But to do that <laughs> version, which is like just to show you how horrible it is, slowly, piece by piece, show the process of how horrible and manipulative and destructive these people are um but i thought that would just be too horrifying and just people wouldn't watch it people would turn away and people wouldn't talk about it and people it would you know if, if part of my motivation is to get people talking about this horrible subject and the wider things it represents then to sort of package it in a way that is for a very very tiny audience didn't seem like a good good approach so i wanted to package it in something which was um much more of a recognizable film framework that people sort of feel comfortable in and so there's there's very much a sort of you know ambitious person steals the wrong thing from the mob kind of storyline which mm-hmm. this is basically what it is she does a heist she steals something that belongs to the the mob uh and then they come and chase her and then it's a sort of a cat and mouse tale and sort of using that framework and using sort of the rules of cinema that people kind of understand um as a jumping off point um was something that came to me very early because much like in the disappearance of Alice Creed I really like using people's assumptions about the archetypes of cinema, cinema against them. Mm-hmm, <laughs> so, you know, mm-hmm. you show somebody and you think, oh, I know what this film is. And then hopefully like 10 minutes later, you're like, no, OK, that's not what I was expecting to happen. And then 10 minutes later, <laughs> I'm like, what is this? What's going to happen now? And then after that, you're like, oh, uh, I have no idea what's going to happen till the very end. And, you know, I love watching films like that where I'm totally wrong footed and I'm not quite sure who to root for or if there's anybody to root for. And it's sort of mm. there's this sort of morally queasy area. I mean, because you know, I watch I watch the news and I don't know who to root for. You know what I mean? I, I vote <laughs> in elections and don't know who to root for. So yeah. um, it seems like we're in a world where everybody's looking for heroes and villains, and there's sort of two, lots of camps of like us and them building up where we've got our heroes and our villains are your heroes, and it's very divisive. Whereas it feels like you know there's just lots of quite grey area grubby human beings, and they sort of like believe some stuff. For real, and then they're sort of trying to play play their game to get power and money and influence. And some maybe back in the day, people wanted to do it for good, but now it's sort of like calcified into this sort of uh, this sort of hard rock of just sort of self gain, um, and they don't even rem- remember why how they got into it. You know, so it feels to me that I could I could sort of express all of that by mirroring this sort of guardian who feels like. A gangster, but who, who's a, on the right side of the law, sort of technically, the law's on her side, uh, mm. and then sort of mirroring her with a gangster who's much more familiar to filmgoers, who is, you know, the Peter Dinklage character, um, mm. who's very similar, and they're twinned in sometimes in their look, and in like, you know, she's got photos on the wall, and he's looking through photos, and they're mm-hmm. both exploiting people, both controlling people, but he does it with like violence and murder and drugs. Uh, mm-hmm. And she does it with the with the courts and the law, you know, mm. um, and sort of twinning the two of them and, and pitting them against each other, two people who won't give up, um, really, really uh, seemed really seductive. And I was like, I've always been a fan of like two people not giving up in a feud movies, like like uh, Tin Men, Levinson's Tin yes. Men, yes. Uh, which I love, or War of the Roses or something yeah. like that, where 
it's like you at the end of it, you sort of you don't want anybody to win. You want them all, all to lose because they've just sort of be- become just sort of existentially locked in this <laughs> terrible battle where nothing good can come from it. Yeah. Um, and that seems quite emblematic of like the world right now to me. So yes, pretty much anything with Danny DeVito in it uh, is oh, yeah. <laughs> is, is in that ballpark. Absolutely. Um, yeah, throw mama from the train, for example, uh, is another Indeed. one that just popped into my head. Um, that's really interesting because I was speaking to Rosamund last week. We had her on the on the podcast, and she was talking about yeah how Marla. I was talking about the similarities, possible similarities between Marla and Amy from Gone Girl, and and she was saying, for example, Amy is 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 violent, is a psychopath. Marla is appalled that someone would actually take this to the next level in terms of violence. Like, how dare you bring a gun into a care home? How dare you come at my friends when we could just settle this in the courts? Trying to outwit me. Um, that's an interesting line in the sand to draw, even though she does resort to violence in the end uh, in, in, to, to achieve her, her goals. That's an interesting line in the sand to draw with this character, I think. Yeah, I mean, she, she's found her. She's found this loophole. She's clever. She's not breaking the law. You know, she she doesn't fear going to jail because she's what she's doing is overcharging. You know, and in America, that's like half of seems to be half of capitalism is based on people overcharging. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah. she's just yes. doing a very very common thing, um, but she's doing it in this framework that looks terrible. But you know, there's there's a whole system in America of you know having vulnerable people who need help. And when the state comes in to help or the, the, the you know, the federal government comes in to, to help or deal with it, that problem, as they've identified it with this vulnerable person, they then enforce the law, but then outsource to a private company, you know, so... Mm. Mm. If like let's say parents and children are getting separated at the border, there's it's not like they they ever say where should we put these children? There's no facilities to put these children, and as soon as they have a, a vulnerable person that needs putting in some locked facility, all these companies like tend to you know you go like bids to mm-hmm. do it because they want to mm-hmm. make the money from the from the government contract. So you know it, there's the system seems designed to put put this sort of like public need this personal need this thing that should be kind of very kind of tenderly taken care of into a system where the end goal is paying their shareholders dividends you know and mm. you know it's very prevalent over there because obviously they don't have the nhs over there but even over here you know we see what's been going on in the news just this week of uh you know private companies being brought in to help with the crisis that we're currently in and all the money that's being sort of like given to friends of friends to to mm. To, to fix this problem which is in the is in the public need but is privately taken care of so it kind of it feels like that's you know the her line in the sand is like i'm not breaking the illegality what i'm doing you know you bring guns in that's not what i'm not i'm not a mobster i'm smart i didn't have to be a mobster you're mm. you're you're thugs and i'm i'm part of the system you're outside the system so if you want to beat me come into my world and beat me with the system or else you're just you know breaking my window with a brick and that's not you know, I don't respect that. Mm. There's there's a couple of moments in the movie as well where uh, the American Dream is brought up, and uh, uh, in that first scene that um, that, that Chris Messina has so when you know, Dean confronts Marley in her office, and he you know says essentially something along the lines of, you know, the scam you've got going here. You know, is there anything more the American Dream than this? Uh, you know, and uh, you know she's she's made manifest her her ambitions into into money, and then obviously the the big confrontation with with Roman. Um, is is very nakedly cynical about the way that the American dream has been corrupted over the years. Was that I, was that something on your mind as you as you wrote the entire movie and obviously those scenes? 
I mean, I think just sort of being alive for the past five years, it's hard not to be influenced by <laughs> everything that's been going on around us, you know? Um, it, it, the fact that, like, the law can get changed or politics can get influenced by, like, lobbyists' money and all that sort of thing, it feels like mm. the rich, you know, this, the, I, I read the other day that, like, you know, there's something like 37 billion has gone out of the economy since since uh, coronavirus, and then the top, like, five billionaires or whatever it is have got, 37 billion dollars richer yeah. Yeah. it's like that's where it goes you know it's yeah. like the system is rigged for them for people to get rich hide their money and then change the law so that that you know the money can't be taken away from them like you know trump brought in his tax law to to help billionaires who don't need any help you know <laughs> uh, and it was it kind of felt like you know i was feeling pretty angry and angry at the world and i don't think i was feeling cynical about it that just seems to be the way it is i think where she, mm. what she when she gets into the the, the the confrontation with Roman in the quarry, uh, she doesn't see it. You know, he he wants to, her to beg for her life and sort mm -hmm. of to get have power over her because she's got power over him and he's never had power over him before. You know, his his reputation and his his organisation has always asserted their power very directly, and people have been scared of it. But she like you know like in gangster movies, mm. uh, but she's not scared of him. She she sees this moment as an opportunity to be in the same space as a very rich person who can make her dreams come true. And it's almost like, you know, she's, she, she's got her elevator pitch. She's, you know, she's yes. in, she's like in dragon's den or like, you know, in America and <laughs> shark tank, you know, it's, yeah. she's, she's got, she thinks this is an opportunity. This guy could give me seed money. It's almost like in social network where like, you know, Peter Thiel walks in. It's like, this is the moment. This is, this is our angel investor. Yeah. Even though yeah. she's tied to a chair with like a gun to her head. So I think there's something very much about, you know, obviously it's a, it's a heightened, version of what the american dream is and how it's being realized mm -hmm. but i you know i think it's there is an absurdity at the heart of it of like this land of opportunity and there is a lot of opportunity and the american there is there is something very seductive about the american dream you know i i made my first film here for like less than a million quid and then uh the next job i was offered which never got made was like would have been like a 200 million dollar movie for a studio and it, and it's just like it's crazy that they have that sort of thing of like you're the guy we're going to take a risk on you for like huge amounts of money um so there's something very seductive about that of like if if you're you can work your way up the system quickly um mm. and you know you can you can be the next big thing uh and everybody thinks they can be billionaires in america and they will be you know because they mm. sort of are invested in that mm. uh and so you know but it doesn't quite work out that way and, and like as she says at the beginning that sort of thing is it's almost like a religion that just helps the people who run the religion, but not the people who are sort of like uh, devoted to it down the bottom and playing by the rules. So, you know, that, that I, I really like that scene. And you sort of see in Rosamond's performance that there's there's almost a, an honesty to Marla in that moment that you don't yeah. see anywhere else. Yeah. Her sort of the veil drops and it's just like, this is what I want. It's like, you know, the words naked ambition <laughs> sort yeah. of sprung to mind yeah. when I was watching it. And she's so good, you know, and you almost feel like he's going to say yes because she's quite convincing, you know, and... <laughs> Uh, I thought, yeah, Rosamund was just fantastic in that scene. She's tremendous, and you're absolutely, yeah, 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 indeed. I mean, the, the, the film is very much about the, the big confrontation scenes in the movie. For me, are about masks dropping, a mask being put back on. I love that first scene with with Dean in the office. There's the two scenes with Jennifer, um, yeah. you know, with the which which is bound to become infamous. You crock of bangly bang uh, insult, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is which is cracking. And then this scene as well, which the, both of them completely nutly drop their masks. And we'll, maybe we'll talk about that more in a second as well. But the, the fact that you brought up Dragonstone absolutely clicked for me because it works. In a way, he does come in later on. <laughs> he, he gives her investment in exchange for 20% of the company or 50% of the company, which is very 
Duncan Bannatyne or, or Peter Jones. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, he's been through hell. So he knows what it's like to be on the other side of this. His mum has been locked up and he's been worried about her, doesn't know where she is and felt powerless. And his instinct isn't like, oh, I've got to help other people not feel this because, you know, he's he's like her. He's like, like, well, actually, no, this is a great, it's, it's almost, this is a great grift you've got. I mean, it was yeah. horrible for me, but I'm not going to protect other people against it. You know, I've, I've got my way out of it. <laughs> so other people can get their own way out of it. Uh, so let's make some money, you know. Uh, and I feel there's something quite quite true about that. I feel a lot of people I've read are like, oh, he would never do that because he'd been through it. I was like, yeah, I, I, of course he would, you know. It's, he sees he the opportunity. In a second, he sees the opportunity and he understands from, from being through it, you know, how well it works. And it's just like, God, it's so easy. So this is easy money. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, he just, like her, he sees he sees legitimate money in it rather than having to go around you know, trafficking drugs. He can actually legally make drugs and sell them, you know? Yeah. So this this idea, the idea of the, the sort of the mob movie um, came to you quite early or, the, you know, or, or going against a mob, that element came quite early. At what point did you land on Roman and Marla go into partnership? I mean, that was before... I think I'd already started writing it, but that was, bef- that was the first version that I wrote had that in it. Um, I don't tend to... I don't tend to sort of break down or outline or anything like that. I tend to write, just write down in prose. I tend to think about it a lot and sort of play stuff out in my head and play scenes out and make notes uh, and not go to scripts really, really fast. Because I think sometimes if you get that first rush of excitement and you start writing, uh, mm-hmm. then when that sort of adrenaline ebbs, you find that, you know, you're <laughs> there's nothing there's, no, there's nothing there. You're sort of like Wiley Coyote running off the cliff and like there's just no <laughs> cliff left and you fall down. Uh, so... I, uh, I tend to like when I get a f- when I'm thinking through stuff. I try and now sort of put off writing um, be- because I kind of want that feeling of being like building up ahead of steam that I really want to write, really want to get it down, and really knowing where I'm going. Uh, so on this one, I mean, the good thing about this one was that I was actually trying to write something else, and this one was sort of my cheat project. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, this is the one that you know, if I got if I if I was getting into difficulty, the other one, I'd come and sort of think about this one and make notes on this one or think about scenes. Um, and then I just kept on getting attracted to this one rather than the other one. The other one I didn't actually write in the end. Um, I think I wrote like five pages of it because I kept on just going <laughs> to this one. You were running um, out of thin air and then yeah, there was exactly. nothing beneath you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, on that one, I had a load of research and notes and it was just like, oh, I don't know. Um, okay. But on this one, whereas this one was, uh, I could see quite a clean way through it. And the, and the central hook at the beginning was so felt so compelling and was so on my mind uh, that I just, you know, I I just sat down with a, a notebook and just started writing like not, not a short story, but just a very like a prose version of the story, like a very short, short, short sort of encapsulation of beginning to end. If, if I was going to tell somebody like, like if I was tied to a chair in a quarry, you know, if we don't come to my head, I had to tell it in like three minutes, the whole story, I, that, that, that would tell the whole story. And that, that had them going into partnership because I just think that, you know, when people see opportunity, they buy it now they don't destroy it it's like you know people people say well what if like you get when people send scripts out when, like when i used to do this and you send it out with like copyright written all over it and like you know mm-hmm. you, you you when you send it out you post a version of it to yourself in a sealed envelope because <laughs> you're so paranoid that somebody's going to steal your brilliant idea whereas you know if a studio wants to steal your brilliant idea they'll just buy it from you <laughs> because because like if you're a starting <laughs> screenwriter you're so cheap you know, you're so cheap for them to completely buy out. Uh, you know, it, it'll be less than what Dean's offering Marla. It'll be like, you know, 
a tiny a tiny little briefcase of money and then you'd be like oh great yeah fine and then you know because that's what people do people with money and power they don't they can use their money and power to buy you out and so that just felt like the right ending because it's you know it's about how money and power doesn't satisfy people who want money and power there's always mm-hmm. more to have because he's he's in a position she wants to be in and she's asking for you know she's asking for 10 million to start and he's like you know dream bigger than that you know what i mean we can we can be billionaires and and that's like it's like you know it's like me being offered the 200 million dollar movie you know it's like wow i wasn't even i wasn't expecting that you know so she has to go for it i think even though it, yeah. even though she does she knows it's sort of walking into the lion's den so so say for example you are in that quarry and you do have your 3 minute <laughs> to pitch three minutes to tell the entire story of the movie yeah. before you started making it, before you even started writing it. Um, did the end, was the end always the end? Did uh, did Marla always get it? Well, just desserts is perhaps the perhaps an incorrect phrase, but uh, yeah. did it always end with Marla being shot? Uh, it did. It did. I mean, I, it was always like a question mark of whether that was that was where where it should go because I you know, obviously it's extremely problematic that a guy who threatens her. Like basically, like an in, using like internet troll language, threatens her with violence in the first mm-hmm. ten minutes, then comes in and kills her in the last five minutes, and and you you shouldn't like that. You know what I mean? That shouldn't be something that we enjoy. Is that he's he's done it, and there's nothing heroic about him because he's just committed a gun crime. You know, the, the the news report of that would be highly successful businesswoman killed by angry man. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it, it should be problematic. But what I like, what I what I liked about it. Um, was it kind of fits into a noir mold as well that ha- you know it's sort of there's, a, there's quite a few films where that sort of happens to the protagonist after uh, after a rise rise to power so there's something of like she she does everything she needs to do she sort of achieves her dreams so she's got nothing else to prove so she's almost kind of made it and she's not sad to be shot but at the same time it's it's like it should be very complicated. It should be something that, in the moment, you kind of feel like, "Oh yeah, yeah, that's what I want. I want, I want this to have closure." Uh, mm-hmm. But then, when the film finishes and you're sort of, you know, watching the credits scroll up, unless it's you know if they've disappeared into a tiny box into the corner of your screen by then, <laughs> um, you're already watching it, an episode uh, of The Office by this point. Jamie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, auto playing uh, Bridgerton or whatever, no, whatever service yes. you're watching on. Uh, the uh, if you're you know, if, if you should be thinking about, is that what I really wanted? To, or do I feel good about it? You shouldn't feel good about enjoying mm. that moment. You should, and I think it's the same with the whole film. The film should give you this sort of queasy, angry, unsure feeling. Yeah. Of like, what do I want from stories? What do I want from heroes and villains? Uh, because there are, you know, I believe there's, there are no heroes and villains. We all are, all those, all the world right now is trying to make people into heroes and villains, and everybody is sort of just a human being doing good or, you know, sometimes doing good things, sometimes do bad things. Some people do more bad things. Some people do more good things. But people are complicated. And, you know, mm. what we want from stories, I think, makes it, what we want is simplicity. And we want, you know, we want sort of to escape into them to find like a version of the world that we'd love to be true. And I think the whole point mm. of this film is to not do that. The whole point of the film yeah. is like, the, that's not the world we're in. The world we're in is kind of absurd and horrible. And we're all kind of grubby and venal. And uh, if you're cheering for this guy doing this, you know, she's not broken any laws at all, you know, throughout the whole film. And she's getting shot in a parking lot, whereas Roman is going to take over this empire because he owns half of it and, you know, keep on doing what he's doing. It's not going to not going to change anything. Mm-hmm. So, we're like, yep. you know, what what world do you want? <laughs> you <know? laughs> so it's meant to be it's meant to be sort of complicated. You know, um, obviously, some people won't take it as complicated. Some people will just take it as, you know, face value. Um, yeah. 
but that's always the risk when you try and make something that is complicated that people will just you know see 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 the the thing mm. that's just in front of them. Well, it's, it's interesting because I, I, I um, when I talked about the film last week on the podcast and uh, even in my conversation with Rosamond, I, I talked about how you deftly manipulate the audience's sympathies. And uh, I was perhaps guilty of hyperbole a little bit. Uh, I've been known to do that when I called Marla the worst person in the world, because <laughs> what you do is, is, of course, you set her up um, and then you bring in Roman, who legitimately might be the worst person in the world. <laughs> you pit her against him. You you put her through all these extremes. And suddenly there's a point in the movie where I, well, this, this is what I found. A um, few people on Twitter have disagreed with me since, but that's fine. Uh, I found suddenly I was strangely rooting for Marla, or at least wanting to see how she would come back from adversity, from, from being left for dead in a quarry. Um, mm. I think it's a really interesting exercise in that, in manipulation and in emotional manipulation and seeing how far people will, are prepared to go with characters who are on the surface despicable. And I know Rosman said, for example, that you had shown that you guys had both watched The Last Seduction, as, as a, which I think is another fantastic template in terms of how far are you willing to go with this character who mm. ordinarily you just wouldn't spend time with on screen. Was that the case uh, for you? Yeah, I mean, we watched various films. So we've also watched Ace in the Hole, the Billy Wilder film. Oh, yeah. Whereas, like, obviously, that's, I think that they go even further than we do with, like, the cynicism of, yes. like, how terrible a person is. Uh, and that's what, and, 1951? I mean, so uh, cynicism yeah. isn't new about, this, no. you know, about the system. It's <laughs> Exactly. And I think, and in that, somebody ends up getting killed because of yeah. Kirk Douglas. Spoiler alert. Uh, but <laughs> there's, you know, nobody really ends up getting killed because of. Mara. I mean, they have unhappy elderly life. You know, they get frustrated and horrified, but she's not killing anybody. Um, but she's, but she's, yeah. I mean, it's it, there, there is this sort of level of unlikability. But pe people are people, and we're used to the language of cinema that you see somebody in adversity and they're struggling against adversity, and they've got a mission that they want to want to do. <laughs> that you end up rooting for them, and like if you if you're just following somebody and watching what they do, unless they, you know. I mean, some people have like compared this to funny games, which I don't think is a good comparison because I, I never, I'm never rooting for the, 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 the two guys in funny games no. who, who invade the house. I'm really not. And that you're never, you're, ne you're not, you just want them to leave. You know, your attention is you just want them to go away. Mm -hmm. With Marla, you don't want her to go away. You just want, you kind of want her to learn her lesson mm -hmm. and you kind of want her to become a good person and realize that she's terrible. Or you want, uh, Diane, Diane Weiss to get revenge on her somehow, you know, mm -hmm. but that's not, unfortunately, that's not really how it works, you know, yeah. uh, that just because you want that doesn't mean that it's going to happen in the same way that in the world, you might want something to happen. You might, and all your friends on Twitter might all want the same thing. So you think, oh, this is definitely going to happen because all my friends want the same thing and realizing that, you know, You're a couple of hundred people, exactly, a couple <laughs> of hundred people on Twitter aren't going to change the world. Yeah. Um, that you know she that you will start feeling for her because especially at that point she feels the most vulnerable and the most human so she's she's invulnerable for the first half of the movie then when she becomes vulnerable and she becomes bedraggled and you see you see her desperation when she finds fran um mm. nearly you know sort of beaten up and when they have that scene in the bathroom where she does feel sorry you know for a moment in a moment it's like oh i, I feel sorry you know because something terrible almost happened but then she, you know, she gets her tooth put back in and then she's sort of reset, basically, of like, she's invulnerable again, you know, because she's had, she's slept on it. It's this like the same thing of like, where you sort of feel bad about something and then two days later, you're like, ah, it doesn't really matter. You know, life goes yeah. on. And she's sort of, 
resets back to back to where she is, which I think is quite a human thing to do. But you, but then she's on a mission, right? And so she's got a plan, mm. and she and she it's not a particularly clever plan, but she gets away with it um, in a way that I think makes you admire her. Uh, and it's and we we're, we're sort of programmed to admire people who are successful and who are rich. It's like when you know that's all we look at. I mean, like we want our you know, people who run the country to be sort of put together and rich and well-to-do and ambitious. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, we don't like them when they're sort of a bit scruffy and haven't got a clear answer on anything and don't have this forward momentum all the time. Don't they, know who you're talking about, but... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? People are mistrustful. It's like, well, you know, it's like uh, if somebody comes into a job interview in a hoodie with like, yeah. you know, sort of, you know pasta sauce on it you're not like you don't think well they're not they're possibly how could they possibly kind of you know be good at i don't know operating a camera mm-hmm. uh, when somebody comes in like who's really who's kind of put together and smart and is good mm-hmm. in a room you feel like oh they must be way better because they i'm just sort of trusting them all but it's just, it's just we've been programmed to admire these things and marla yeah. knows that and marla kind of weaponizes that um and so when halfway through that sort of comes apart and she gets a bit more scruffy i think you do the door is open to you, and not to your empathy, but just to your sort of like, oh, she's got, she has got a weakness. She is human, and so you just give her a little bit more time, and then she's on another mission, and hopefully, you're just enjoying it enough that you kind of want her to succeed. Because mm. uh, I don't know. I mean, that's that's the way films work, isn't it? That you know, you show somebody trying to do something, and you want to find out whether they do it or not. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, pretty much. And uh, but also, you have the. I think the relationship with with Fran is is a way into her humanity. I think that's the one time she doesn't throw up apart from the conversation with with Roman in the quarry I think you know she doesn't throw up any masks at all in our relationship and uh, you know her terror when she sees Fran left for dead in the in the house just before it blows up is is real uh, mm. and uh, you know I, can you talk about that relationship with with Fran I mean how, how important that was for you and uh, to 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 give Marlis something I, I I guess well for me it was making sure that people understood that Marla is a human being you know she's not a monster. Um, I think she's. It's easy to watch somebody who's, who's sort of a caricature of a monster doing terrible things because you can sort of dismiss it as sort of like, well, they're a psychopath or something, right? Mm. Whereas she's not. She she feels love and she does care for people and she just cares for the people around her. And this seems to be something that you know something I very much noticed in America when I was when first went over there. It's like there's this we're very used to sort of like a safety net in a welfare state, whereas there's there's no sort of sense of that like having to exist in America. So it's like you take care of your own and everybody else can take care of their own. And that's their business. And this is our business. And so I think mm. she takes care of her inner circle. Right? She's probably a great boss. She probably gives, you know, great Christmas presents and bonuses and pays very well. Like the people who work in her office that we see, and they all seem to like her as well. Um, but then anybody outside that circle is fair game. So I think it was really for, to, to sort of humanize her within that, you know, that close circle. And, and Fran does that. And also, she, even though she's very ambitious, she doesn't need for people to be sort of bowing down to her. She doesn't sort of need people to treat her as if she's powerful because Fran doesn't. Fran's an equal with her and she's an equal mm-hmm. with Fran. And she defers some decisions to Fran. And, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're very much a team in a way that, you know, you find it hard to think that maybe sort of like a gangster, like I don't think Peter Dinklage would be in a team with anybody, you know? Yes. Whereas, whereas Marla is in a team with Fran and they do love each other. They clearly love each other. And it's like this honest... There's a there's sort of an honesty and a um, companionship between them that is, you know, is sort of deep rooted, and they trust each other, you know, uh, in a way that I don't think on a, especially on Roman side he trusts anybody. So for me, it was important just to have that 
kind of make her human and to complicate the fact that she's treating other people so badly because she's, you know, she clearly can feel for people. It's not that she's unfeeling. It's like, but she just chooses the people to feel about and everybody else is just profit. Mm. And of, of course, in, in movies like this and, you know, in, in thrillers over the years, traditionally, the, for want of a better phrase again, the, the love interest winds up dead. And um, I'm, I'm very glad you didn't do that with, with Fran in this. Was, was that ever on the table at any point? Uh, no. <laughs> Good man. <laughs> never, thought about, never thought about killing Fran. I like Fran. So, yeah. she, and, she's, and she's the only one who's like at all maybe kind of likeable in the whole thing. You know what I mean? She, she's going along with Marla's plan uh, and she's sort of invested in it and enjoys it. But I kind of feel like she's, you know, she's the one that sort of pulls against Marla a little bit. You know, she's the one who gets upset when the doctor dies, you know? And so mm. um, I feel like she, she has a, a bit like her her circle of humanity is slightly wider than Marla's is and can can maybe include us but she's you know but she's an accessory to what Marla's doing so she's she's culpable but you know she's hopefully she's kind of likable so you kind of like you, she's despicable in her actions but she's likable uh just sort of in a, in a sort of moment to moment basis in a way that Marla because we're watching her do all these terrible things and watching her lie and we don't often see Fran lie she just um mm. she's just doing a job and doing it well I want to go back to the beginning of the movie because uh, with Feldstrom, because you have a recognisable actor in Megan Blair, um, and it, he is the basically the first character we see. We're hearing Marla, but we're seeing him, uh, and it's a fine line that you have to tread because you know, as the writer and director, that he is going to be the guy who ultimately comes back at the end of the movie and kills Marla. But you have to set up his story and then make the audience forget about it. That's a neat magic trick. You have to forget about Felstrom for the next hundred minutes, and then he pops up right at the end. Um, how difficult is that <laughs> from a, from a directing point of view? Um, I mean, it helps if he's wearing the same hat both times, because then you recognise the hat as well as the actor, right? <laughs> so, uh, so we definitely we definitely chose something that for him to wear that people would say is the guy in that. I mean, if he if we'd shave if we'd shaved him and you know dressed him differently, I think it would have been hard for people to understand who he was. Um, I mean, the, the opening, I sort of wanted to the audience to maybe feel that we would be seeing his point of view, like mm-hmm. like the expected version that I was toying with, you know, initially of like, you know, do you see, see it from his point of view? And so we start with his mother, you know, we see his mother in the, the home and we see him trying to get in and we see his anger. Uh, and we just, and, you know, we want to get the sense that he's, He's probably tried everything. This person's at his wit's end, right? So when we see him in the court, we, you know, she's introduced very much as, you know, an impressive figure, you know, and the movie star, you know, we kind of dolly into her hairstyle, her sort of iconic hairstyle, and you see her organising her pens before we then, you know, she sort of does a look up to camera, which is like we all sort of being a bit like, you know, and Kate Winslet turns around in a hat in Titanic. It's a real sort of like, I'm the movie star in the movie, you know? Uh, and it's important to introduce her that way because we haven't seen her, right? So you, you want to tease her to the audience because you've heard her and she's said this stuff which, you know, you, you absolutely get a point of view and you know that she's not in that courtroom really for the good of anybody by the time mm. we meet her. Mm. But you also understand that Felstrom is like this guy who's that we've recognized because he's had this sort of sweaty fight with a security guard and it's like pretty ignoble what he's the way he's introduced as well that hopefully you get this sense of like it's kind of complicated nobody's nobody's kind of uncomplicated right because she says you know you could have moved her into your home and he could have and i think you know making asked me if like well 
did I did, was I actually, is she right? Was I actually trying to save her inheritance? And I and I think it's like probably yes and no. It's like you probably were like waiting as long as humanly possible before you had to deal with it. And that's a very mm-hmm. human thing to do. But that little window of opportunity of not taking care of it yourself let this monster in to your mm-hmm. house, you know? Mm-hmm. And so he's he's kind of culpable, you know, and he's not behaving very well. He's going and beating people up and threatening people and like throwing fire extinguishers around. Uh, which gives all the power to Marla in the, you know, you know, as she very condescendingly says to him, you know, in the last time you visited her, you know, you assaulted a staff member, you know, and it's like, uh, it's, you know, you, you put him on the back foot very quickly. But I think because of his indignation, it makes her sort of, I think he is kind of memorable. You know, we have lots of shot of him close up as well, which helps. And then giving him the, the conference, confrontation scene outside you really, he sort of set up as like an everyman, like the the, the kind of person that she runs into every week. Uh, but because he's representative of that and you sort of feel his ire at the beginning mm-hmm. that when he turns back up, it's quite easy to for that ire to be resummoned, especially when he says, you know, my, my mother died and like, you wouldn't let me see her. You sort of very quickly get the kind of, oh, God, it must have been like years, like, you know, between then and now. And mm-hmm. how awful. <laughs> and so you yeah. kind of because of her rise to success, you're sort of like. There's sort of like this American dream montage sort of sequence. You kind of like you, and it sucks you in. Like the music, you know, the DJ Shadow music sucks you in. The images mm-hmm. suck you in, and it it feels like a, a seductive sort of sequence. It almost plays like a commercial for like I don't know, for an airline or something. And then, <laughs> and then at the very end, you see him, and you kind of like, oh, of course, these aren't just faces on a wall that we're seeing put up. These aren't just profit yeah. points that are intercutting with the money. Yeah, these are all people, and every one of these has one of these people who's a family, and for two years, his life has been terrible because now she can afford a Ferrari. You know, so yeah. it's just a reminder of like cutting through of you know, hoping hoping the audience realizes that when they see really rich, successful people in the world, like they've probably gamed the system somehow. And there's, you know, it's not a zero sum game. There's probably somebody out there who's who's sort of like feeling hard done by of like not getting, not being allowed to join a union or not not getting minimum wage or, you know, whatever it is. There is, yeah. you know, yeah. people make money by, by any means necessary. And so he was hopefully coming in to sort of kind of puncture that sort of like, you know, sorcery at the end. And did you experiment I mean, in terms of when we see him as as the audience? Uh, because I think the second we see him, we think, okay, something's afoot. You know, and uh, did you toy with no one seeing him until he pulls the trigger on Marla? Did he come in earlier in terms of in terms of ramping up the tension of that, or the inevitability, I guess, of what happens when when he appears uh, at the end? Did you play around with the timing on that? Oh yeah, we did. That, that we that took quite a long time. Um, Mark Eckersley and I did various various different versions, and because obviously we're intercutting with the um, the news interview, yeah, uh, at, around that thing, and we're slightly overlapping time as well. We sort of sl- slightly repeat bits we've already seen as we cut back to him coming, and it was a real sort of balancing act because if you show him too early you sort of know too quickly it's going to happen. But if you do it too quickly, then it's just like you don't feel it's going to happen before it happens. And it was, yeah, it was like it's, some of it was to do with the music and the rhythm of that. And it just, it was like a fine, a fine line of how, how much we needed. I think the first version, it sort of stretched out a bit too long. And then we sort of cut it really too short. And it was just sort of like, you know, sort of concertinering until you find exactly the right sort of biting point. But that's yeah. the same with all scenes. You know, you, you do various versions of everything and then 
once the rhythm of the film and the rhythm of that end montage, especially with the music, once that sort of established itself and it was starting to feel really, really good and the right length, then you sort of can can feel feel how that should work. And you know, when you're editing it, you don't have there's lots of visual effects in that final montage. And so mm. we were like working with lots of temp visual effects, so we weren't quite sure if it was all kind of working like blood effects and stuff. And so when it, we got closer and closer to the end, when the the visual effects were coming in and looking a lot better, <clears throat> that really helped with the rhythm of it. You mentioned uh, Ace in a Hole, and uh, which just reminded me of of Sunset Boulevard, which is a, another Billy Wilder movie, of course. But that also begins with a voiceover from the lead character who turns out to be dead by the end of the movie. Was that was that also <laughs> a, a, an inspiration for you, an, an influence? I mean, I, I guess so. I mean, there's I'm always sort of more it's more double indemnity, I guess. Than uh, oh yeah, gonna, yep, yep. I love Billy Wilder, and I love his sort of worldview, which is humanist but very cynical. And yes. not 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 rom- it's sort of romantic and optimistic, but very realistic about what human beings are like and how they operate and the failings of human human beings, and that sort of and how p- people use power against each other sort of arbitrarily, you know. <laughs> and so uh, I, I love Sunset Boulevard, uh, but yeah, Double Indemnity is probably closer to the the influence because he's he's narrating that sort of as like a stream of consciousness as he's dying, right? So he's been shot at the beginning and he's bleeding out very, you know, similarly to like Marla at the end. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and although, you know, we, we, it's not like we like have her in, in a body bag at the end. You're not quite sure if she is totally, I mean, you know, the, I would, I want people to think that she is, but she may not totally be dead. Yeah. Um, and she does say at the end, I'm only getting started. So hopefully there's like an ambiguous thing of like, oh, is she, is she only getting started or is this over? It's like, and what, and which version do you want to be true? Her sheer willpower might just fend off the bullet. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. She's. There, I mean, there, there used to be some lines in there where she was talking to Fran as she was after she was shot, and like Rosamund was like now and again would like would improvise things like you know I don't die I can't get shot by someone like that I don't die because he shoots me you know what I mean uh, she's sort of indignant it's like this, don't worry about it he, he's he's not the kind of guy who can get away with this he's like you know he's competent enough to shoot me and take me down though he didn't he didn't use those obviously okay. uh, but there's like an idea in there of like maybe you know you know like a little I mean I think it's like 99% sure but there's like that 1% of ambiguity at the end where you see you know, you see the smile fade from her eyes uh, in that final shot that you kind of think, oh, she might, she might just, you know, come back, you know, like Jason Voorhees or something. <laughs> you never know. And uh, I just want to wrap up by asking about the the three scenes that I, I <laughs> seems like a long question, but uh, the, the, the scenes that I mentioned earlier on, the scene with, with Dean when he first goes into uh, Marla's office, uh, and that's just a beautifully written chess match between the two of them. Both of them know that they're both very, very dodgy, but neither really wants to admit it until the briefcase opens and then the masks drop. Uh, the scene with Jennifer and the scene in the quarry with with Roman. Uh, from a writing point of view, how long did you spend on those scenes? Which was, the, and I guess the, the Roman one was the most important. Did that take the longest? I mean, I guess so. I mean, they were all slightly longer on the page, especially Roman's one, um, than, than they ended up being in the movie. Uh, a, because it's quite nice to give your actors more to do and then pick the pick the moments that are kind of pick out the gold, pick all the stuff you need. Because if you have like a short scene, it doesn't give them much run up. So they all sort of, they all, they all felt a little, little longer. Like the second court scene with Dean, you know, second scene with Dean in the courtroom, that was, that was significantly longer, but it just kind of felt Chris brought Dean so quickly that you didn't need to have them any more of him because the second one was trying to get more of a sense of him as a lawyer but like as soon as he walks in the room you kind of get that but with those three scenes 
I don't know. I mean, they were just really fun to write. By that point, I sort of knew that, you know, you sort of done all the setup and he wanted to wanted the ball to sort of start rolling down the hill faster. And the scene with Dean was just, it was just really fun to write. I mean, it's hard because you can't, you can't, I can't really remember, <laughs> you know, writing these scenes because they come out, when they're working, it comes out really thick and fast. Yeah. And the scene with Dean came fast. The scene with Roman was a bit, bit more difficult because, you know, there's, there's sort of an expectation of a scene like that, of what it's going to play out at. And you, I mean, personally, I try and resist what that expectation is. So like, you know, that kind of scene, you normally expect somebody to be sort of like crying and begging for their life. And that's sort of what, you know, that's sort of like teary, you know, please, 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 which, which you, you know, I have in The Disappearance of Alice Creed at the beginning, mm-hmm. you know, somebody who's just terrified of being in this situation. But Marla's not that character. And so the, the fun of that was finding just how, how much, pushback she could get and how much fear she was covering and how much is she actually scared or is she not scared is she telling the truth is she really not scared of death or is this part of a play is she lying so that for me was like what's the lies and what's the truth and which matter and like for some for me i don't i don't have the answer and like you know roswood had asked me i said well what do you think and just play it the way you think i was like okay this time play as if you're lying this time playing as if it's true and then like which one felt which one felt like marla you know yeah but they they were in the writing stage you know that for me you know, I, I really like writing those scenes and I really like working with actors. So for me, it's just like, what can I what can I give two great actors to do and like getting two great actors head to head? And obviously I didn't know who's going to play them, but like having Rosamund and Chris play that head to head. And it's just two people sitting in chairs talking. For me, that's like a delicious prospect. So writing scenes where I can have basically be sitting by, by the monitor watching them do it and sort of kind of just, you know, having the most fun you can have on set like watching the scene come alive with these two great actors and the same mm. goes for like you know how lucky am i like that that scene with messina is amazing you know they did the way that they do the work is fantastic they have you can tell they're having so much fun doing it and then mm. we were all having fun it was a really fun day on set and then the one the one with diane you know so you got diane weiss and rosamund pike like two of the top of their game actors going head to head and going at it and try, almost trying to beat each other. You know what I mean? There's like, as actors, they're competing and, and playing off each other and they're just sort of getting better and better. So, you know, trying to write scenes that, you know, you can create the opportunity to do that is like pitch two really, really good actors against each other for me is, it's sort of always an ambition I have in my, in my, my stuff. And, you know, I like scenes where no, there's no dialogue for a long time, like at the beginning of Alice Creed or like from mm-hmm. the car going in the water in this one. Mm-hmm. And then, then coming out, out of that, having, 10 page scenes of just people talking to each other, um, which isn't the, re- the usual rhythm of things. But for me, that feels like the most satisfying way to, for me to make films. And so that's yeah. just, just how they come out, I guess. Yeah. And yeah, for all, for all the, the great dialogue in those scenes as well, I think perhaps the most chilling thing is just simply a look that Diane Weist gives uh, to, to Marla. Uh, you know, and obviously she's an Oscar winning actress. She's got incredible range. She's shown it all the way through her career. But I think you think of Diane Weist, you think of her generally as this very likable, warm, slightly eccentric figure on screen. And here she's just <laughs> stone cold, <laughs> terrifying, uh, which is which is tremendous. Uh, how, do, how do you direct that, that look from her when she just... Well, Diane, you know, Diane's a... A really, really, really good actress. <laughs> so you, yeah. you just have to sort of talk to her about what you want, and then kind of stay out of her way, uh, because she was, she was, you know, her character is on so many drugs at that point that kind of gave Diane sort of like a leeway to sort of really step out of what, like the character of Jennifer that she's played before, because she can sort of almost become like a different character and reveal herself as a different character, mm-hmm. and that gave gave her quite a lot of 
freedom, I think. And, you know, Jennifer and uh, Diane, sorry, she, I think she very much plays off other actors. So she sort of just lives in the moment that she's feeling. And so in that scene, she would often go a bit off, off script. And so Rosamond's looking at her like, what, you know, what's going on, you know? And it's really putting Rosamond out of her comfort zone. You can sort of feel that with Marla of like, where she's, I think in the script, she had like two tell me's. uh, And then in the film, there's like nine of them because she's just like, tell me, tell me, Jennifer, tell me. And like Diane is going, woo, you're a robber. And like going, you know, improvising and stuff. And it's great. And, you know, it was Diane that, I mean, Diane came up with the word croc and threw it in there. That was nothing to do with me. So, you know. Oh, really? Yeah, that was was an ad that she threw in. (laughs) <laughs> which I was like what does that mean it's like and she goes I don't know it's like I, I don't know either but I love it uh but yeah I mean I but her eyes and I tend to really love actors with kind of very expressive eyes who can do a lot of it just with their eyes and obviously you know Peter can do that all day long and Rosamond can do that and Messina can do that. everybody we have in this film can do that and Diane she's often she's sort of she is sort of softer and like she feels a bit sort of you know um a bit more passive, like in, in her roles, because she's got this light voice and she's quite, you know, she's played like mm. the mum, the mum in all these films in the eighties, like The Lost Boys and Edward Scissorhands and all sorts of things, Parenthood and all these things. So she has this sort of very maternal quality, which really helps at the beginning of the movie. But then there's a real surprise when you have that shift, and but she's such a good actor that you know she, she was like she was finding those looks, she was just like feeling it and looking at Rosamond and like as you know. My direction was mostly just sort of like, do that again, (laughs) do that again, just show her how much you hate her with a look. Don't, you know, don't shout at her, just do it with a look and keep it quiet. That sort of, you know, keep it hemmed in, keep your power, don't give any of it away. And I think that was, um, I mean, she was doing that anyway, but, you know, just sort of picking out the bits that you like, especially because she's in this headspace of, you know, being a bit sort of doolally because she's pretending to be on drugs that, you know, she was sort of just going for it like there was no brakes on the the brakes on the bike, you know, which is great. It's mm. great when an actor will trust you enough to really throw themselves at it like that, and she certainly did. Yeah, and and, and again with the with Dinklage as well, the way he uses his physicality all, all the way through the movie is is interesting. The, the, the second time we meet him, when he's on the rings, that's a really mm. interesting character introduction. Was that something you wrote when you knew you had him, or was that something that you always you always had? Uh, that was something I always had. Yeah, um, we I, I didn't write it with Peter in mind, um, but then. Peter was suggested to me because he shares an agent with Rosamond and the, the, you know it was written for kind of like a big scary bear of a guy you know which you know Peter is can be quite scary but he's not a big bear of a guy and mm. it was uh but like when I met Peter he just t- totally got the character and and he said and he asked me if I was going to rewrite the film you know with him in mind now and I was like no it's just it's <laughs> There's no need, you know. It's, you could play this character without having any rewriting it. There would be no mention of anything about his about mm. his size mm. because you know he's he's got power and he's got big he's got big guys behind him. He doesn't need to be a big guy because he's got power. He doesn't need the physicality, and mm. so all that stuff about his physicality sort of became about his vanity. You know, he likes cream cakes, but then he likes working out to get rid of the cream cakes, and you know he's. <laughs> He's got like a bit of an anger problem, so listens to sort of Icelandic lullab- yeah, Icelandic lullabies as he's on the rings and sort of eats healthy snacks in his spandex, whatever he's in, in his lycra. Um, it's, it was just to give, just to give him this sort of not really Achilles' heel, but sort of the, the the vanity of a powerful man who then who the dean also kind of dean also has this like pompous vanity that is like the confidence of somebody who has had the world 
at their feet for such a long time, you know, mm-hmm. that they can, mm-hmm. they, they just assume that they can walk over everybody. And so when Marla refuses, then they're, they're so taken aback and so it takes them away from just being violent guys with guns. They've got this sort of, a, not not a softness, but there's a vanity, which I think a lot of, mm. like most of us have, you know, it's very yeah. identified. Yeah. And then, of course, you see how sort of pathetic and 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 scrabbling Dean can be later on when confronted with real power in the in the in the form of Roman. But uh, absolutely. But I just want to ask real real quick about um the 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 Jennifer uh, transformation because when we first meet her, I guess you're trying to show as well how quickly circumstances can change for people. You could be going on about your business one day, someone knocks at the door, here's a court order. Five minutes later, you're in a care home, your phone's been taken away, and you're completely and utterly discombobulated. Um, it is interesting rewatching the film again how passive Jennifer is in that. I guess she's in shock. Um, but were there different versions again where we get more of a hint at Jennifer we're we're going to see later on? I mean, she fights back until she sees the cops, right? So yeah, she sort of laughs it off and says, "No, I'm not coming with you." And then uh, Marla steps it up with like, "Well, if you don't, you're going to be in trouble." And then she sees the cops and she's just like, I mean, A, you know, you see the cops, you don't want to be in trouble. You think, I've got no choice. It's like she has a legal document and there's the, this isn't a, this isn't sort of like a door to door scam by somebody who hasn't got the law on the side. He, she literally has the law right there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you kind of feel like, well, I kind of have to go along. It's like with the police knocking door and say, can you come with us down the station? You're like, I guess I have to. You know what I mean? Because yeah. people get scared of getting in trouble. And obviously she has her history and doesn't want anybody rooting into her history. Uh, so she goes along with it. And Marla gives her this sort of like soft in and soft, you know, it's like, well, you know, why don't you just go to this place and then we can figure it out. And all Marla wants her to do is just get her in behind the doors, you know? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so she feels like she kind of, it's not, it's not like a thing of like, you're never coming back here. We're going to sell your house. It's just like, okay, you'll probably figure this out by this afternoon, but you know, just come with us, do this. And then, so it kind of, it's like this softly, softly. And from reading like the true life accounts that that is kind of how fast it happens. You know, people are, given this court order and sort of said, you've got to come with me. It's almost like come down to the station. By the time they realize they're in a care home, they're like, what? You know, what yes. now? And they've yeah. got, they can't they can't do anything about it because they're sort of in prison, basically. So, you know, I kind of wanted that horror of like, you know, the steepening, like the quicksand, the steepening hill into quicksand. It's like you feel like I, I, I'm i not okay with this, but suddenly I'm out of my depth and suddenly I'm, get, I'm sinking, sinking, sinking. And then, and then I'm, oh, it's like there's a great bit at the end of like Finch's Dragon Tattoo mm. where... Um, you know the Daniel Craig character is invited into a drink for a drink with Stellan Skarsgård, and um, he knows Stellan Skarsgård. Spoiler alert: he knows Stellan Skarsgård is up to no good, and uh, and so so and so but he gets offered into a drink, and he doesn't want to be impolite or show his hand, so he just come, comes in and has a drink with Stellan Skarsgård, even though he knows he's spoiler alert the bad guy. So um, and then Stellan Skarsgård has this great speech about you know people you know about capturing his victims that people would rather put themselves in danger than be rude and to mm. cause a fuss and i think that's a very human thing is like you don't want to be the person who's causing the fuss especially when there's like authority around because you don't want to get into trouble and that can just lead you into sort of very bad situations and lead the world into bad situations mm. that sort of weakness mm. when it's sort of done on a large scale and so there is you know there's something marla says under that behind that scene about you know we're all you know we're all weak and scared you know basically yeah. um yeah. and it's sort of true that i you kind of feel like i would never do that it's easy to watch a film and say i would never do that but when you're in that situation like what what could you do you know yeah. what what can you do and yeah. um i felt that was kind of you know, the most horrifying thing about the stories I read is like they these people just felt like you know they felt like they were idiots for not fighting back 
but we've all had that feeling of like, why didn't I do that? Like the, you know, after the mm-hmm. fact of like, I should have done something else. I should have fought back more. Um, but for them, the stakes is just higher than, you know, it is for, for us when we were, you know, whatever small time thing we're talking about. Absolutely. And of course, you know, the, the moment that it hits home for her is when her phone is taken away. And that's the moment it would hit home for me. I'd be going, no, my Twitter. You can't. Yeah. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> I need to tweet. What are you doing? Now Now I know the shit has just got real. Um, Jay, I'm, I'm going to let you go, but I have to I have yeah. to ask one last thing. Uh, thanks so much for your time, man. It's been amazing. Um, you are, I think... One of the few directors in recent years to direct Asaya Whitlock Jr. and not get him to say shit <laughs> at, uh, at a certain point. Uh, is there a deleted scene knocking around where, where <laughs> the judge <laughs> throws one out just for just for old time's sake? No, no, no. I mean, I do love Isaiah when he says that in other people's movies, but yeah. uh, I wanted him very much to be the, the character in this. And the character, <laughs> I don't think it would quite have quite a fit into the role he was playing but uh i uh these are petty concerns <laughs> oh i know i know i'm sorry i mean I've, I've totally ruined my chances of getting into some sort of supercut on youtube uh with my movie but but um no i i, I it was great and he did really really good really good work in the movie but no i was mm. i was very very deliberately not getting to say it though uh again i know i do enjoy it Amazing, amazing. Well, thanks so much for your time, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, and best of luck with whatever's next for you. Yeah, thank you very much, Chris. All right, All cheers, right. Jay. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Okay, so that was Jay Blakes, and now it's time for us to delve deep into this movie. And when I said I care a lot about I care a lot, I wasn't being facetious for once. I... I think this film's fantastic and that's one of the reasons why we're sitting here today having a chat about about it for this uh, spoiler special and Terry I know that as the the author of the four star review in Empire Magazine you feel similarly I do feel similarly um, I loved I loved this film and it took me a little bit by surprise um, yeah. I was assigned it in a very scientific way that how all are Empire you reviews. assigned something you're the editor of Empire surely you assign things to yourself no I'm just one of the guys, Chris. Just You're just one a of the cog guys. in the machine. One of the guys, <laughs> one of the gals. Um, I am just a, a cog in the corporate system of capitalism <laughs> in which we all flounder. <laughs> just a hamster on the wheel. <laughs> yep. Glad to see we're using these 35 minutes wisely. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I loved this film. Absolutely loved it. And and I'm sure we'll get into this. I don't think it's perfect by mm-hmm. by any stretch. It's uh, The wheels come off quite spectacularly, but I actually really love that about it. I had such a good time with this film and I just think the writing's impeccable Rosamund Pike's impeccable Diane Weist is I mean yeah we'll get into it all but I yes I had a very 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 good time with this film yeah, indeed. It took me by surprise as well. I watched this very, very late at night, the night before I was due to interview Rosamund Pike, and uh, I was working on a feature at the same time. And I watched this about half 11 at night, and it was like, oh, wow, this is actually really fun and dark and piercing, and she's incredible in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a little disappointed that she, I don't think, is in the Oscar conversation, because I think she should be. Um, and it really, really, really blindsided me and I think holds up on second viewings. Uh, Hell's Bells, what about you? Yeah, very much so. I I watched it on my own for a second viewing because when I watched it for the first time with my sister, she just sat and every five minutes or so went, I hate her. 
I hate her. <laughs> I hate him. I also hate her. And it was like just a litany the whole way through the film, which is deserved, entirely deserved. They're despicable mm. people. Mm. And like, as I said on the main pod, I, I have real trouble sometimes with films where there's no one to root for, where everyone yeah. is just awful, because I just don't like nihilism as a thing. But in this case, they were all awful, but you felt like the film had a point of view on that. You felt the film had a moral kind of center and kind of knew what it was saying and knew what it was doing. And so I didn't get put off by that in the same way that I sometimes have. In the same way, like Wolf of Wall Street, same kind of thing. I feel like the film knows what it's doing and therefore I'm totally okay with going along with these incredibly despicable people. And in this one, it's, it's, I mean, it's it's the nightmare scenario is you are helpless, you are completely in someone else's power, and no one will believe you when you say that they're a bad person. Mm. You know, the, the situation for, quote unquote, Jennifer is horrendous in this film, and it is entirely one of Marla's doing, and she's the worst. But you just kind of get caught up in watching her be the mm. worst. And I, I actually think, and people will have already heard if you sat through the full hour uh, of me talking to Jay Blakeson, you'll have heard him say that that was actually one of the things in his mind in a, in a way that he kind of wanted to toy with that I, that notion of, of, of can people root for unlikable, despicable characters and testing audiences' limits and audience complicity in, in watching despicable characters do despicable things. And I have to say, it, it kind of worked for me in that mm. I think he does a really, really interesting thing of introducing you to the worst person in the world, although he quibbled with that, and so did Rosamund Pike and uh, that description, and then introducing you to even worse people and putting them again putting her against them. And so for the last half an hour or so, I was fully in Team Marla camp going, okay, I don't particularly want to see her win the day at the end of the movie, but I do want to see this guy, Roman, get his comeuppance. I do want to see how this really resourceful character will trick her way to a victory. Um, yeah. Terry, where do you stand on on the notion of unlikable protagonists? You see, I don't have a problem with it. And I have to say, I don't have to even particularly root for people when it is as entertaining as this. And as Helen said, it, it does have a point of view. And you, you're looking at, you know, the problems of late stage capitalism. You're looking at elder abuse, mm. really serious problems in, you know, it's a damning indictment of the US uh, healthcare system, of how um, the elderly are treated in America. And I have to say, as somebody who was in a psychiatric ward in the US, you may not see a link yet, I'm going to make one. As somebody <laughs> who was in a psychiatric ward... That sense of being trapped somewhere and the more you say something, the more mad you looked is actually really realistic. Mm. I thought for something that was um, so pulpy, it was grounded in a realism and a, a reality that I think made it work. And I yeah. also have to say that, you, you know, Marla, you don't, she is absolutely dreadful. But I have to say, and I say this in the review, there is something really thrilling to see a woman who at a particular point in the film is meant to be in fear of her life mm. and she's in fear of physical violence and she says with a smile and with a shrug, well, you can't get a woman to do what you want, then you call her a bitch and you threaten to kill her. Yeah. And you can't help as a woman at that point both kind of totally get what she's saying and also in that moment I did root for her. Yeah, yeah, that's true, yeah. And and I, I root for her 
to survive anyway. I don't know if I'm always rude. I mean, like what she does, like you say, it's elderly, it's elder abuse. It is exploitation. It is playing the system entirely for your own end. It's playing a, like, but it's a corrupt system. It's an incredibly corrupt system mm. that it allows and encourages that kind of behavior. And, uh, and she has found her niche and she's like a spider in her web and she's found a way to play the system to her own end. And there are at least hints through the film that there's something in her background that, has led her to this this if you like kind of moral stance that has led her to this preoccupation with wealth as a means of uh, security and safety and something because the fact that she is so you know when when he has her kind of tied to a chair uh, having kidnapped her, like she is a hundred percent, like okay, you're going to kill me, whatever. Like there's, there is a, a real disconnect from life at that point, and a real disconnect from any kind of hope in a weird way uh, to anything better coming along. So she's clearly screwed up in the head, but she's also awful. So <laughs> did you? I enjoyed the fact that it, it, even though there were hints, it didn't see to put her behavior in context mm-hmm. or justify it by mm-hmm. going and now ladies and gentlemen we go into the backstory her yeah. grandmother was, and and it just yeah. allowed her to be the opening narration you think the opening narration where she says oh you know there are lions and lambs and i'm a fucking lioness and she just says explicitly i want to be rich yeah. really fucking rich and you're expecting that narration to be subverted at some point so there be extra depths of humanity which have led her to become this shell of human being no she just really 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 likes money and mm. really wants to be rich and to your point she's in a system that rewards that behavior and yeah. makes it possible to get really rich by being a dreadful person and that's kind of the the reveal really yeah. is this the the kind of point of view it has on that system as opposed to you know how a bad woman is constructed mm-hmm. and made absolutely yeah. and the fact that she's not just sort of enabled by the judge and of course her co-conspirators but the judge is her real patsy at the beginning and he kind of enables her to do all of this but it's not just him it's not that simple when you see her being lauded by everyone at the end as this great capitalist success story, that's Mm. an indictment of the whole thing and not just Mm -hmm. a few bad apples. Yeah. And uh, yeah, certainly the way things are going in the States where people are are bedazzled by Fox News and by people appearing on Fox Mm. News, people who maybe look and sound and say things an awful lot like, who look like Marla and maybe sound like Marla and say things that are slightly faintly sociopathic or not even faintly sociopathic, (laughs) full on sociopathic (laughs) like Marla. Mm. And they're idolised. And I don't just mean women as well. I mean, there, you know, there, there are, there there are tons of, of politicians and, and news presenters in the States who all seem to you know, who, who all seem to have the same sort of rhetoric as Marla. And uh, in a way, she's the twisted ultimate outcome of the American dream, which is terrifying in, in a way. Because as Jay Blakeson points out, she doesn't do anything illegal mm. at any point. No. Uh, until obviously she gets pushed to, I guess, you know, kidnapping someone and sticking a needle in her arm and, you know, leaving them for dead. You know what she does to Roman at the end—that's illegal. But uh, everything else, everything else is is grey area, right? I, mm-hmm. I, I would be very surprised if there aren't rules against what she does to, uh, to quote unquote Jennifer once she's mm-hmm. in her care. I don't think there's any. If she's ordering someone to reduce her medication to cause her pain, mm-hmm. if that could be proven, which of course would be the difficult thing, then mm-hmm. that would 100% be illegal. Yeah, but it wouldn't be proven. 
yeah and and the basic setup she you can become rich within an entirely legitimate system yeah. and i think she says that at one point to fran mm. um her girlfriend i think she actually yeah. says you know this is all completely within the law and, and at the end when she has the company with roman that's just what she was doing before mm. just with an infrastructure of money and you know corporate america around it but fundamentally it's the same behavior she had before on a smaller mm. scale yeah. and the loopholes that exist within that system are what allow people like her to absolutely behave like that so while she's an extraordinary character in in many respects what she does actually isn't yeah that's 100% true. And and it is the it is the ultimate end game and it is something that exists these corporations that own the nursing home and the drug company and the doctor surgery and 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 that do this whole kind of service ecosystem. That's 100% a thing that is true in the world and there are huge numbers of these scams where you've got, you know, subsidiaries of companies paying themselves over and over again. This is, you know, capitalism is bad people, let's get rid of it. Anyway, <laughs> didn't think we'd be doing this <laughs> remaking the world and our image on the empire podcast uh what would you call it hellenism no maybe not maybe not <laughs> i don't know uh what do we think of the end though because the end of the movie uh for a movie as you say it doesn't really seem to judge marla morally it does seem to be a bit of a moral judgment. Now, you could argue, as Jay Blakeson did, that Marla isn't necessarily 100% dead uh, at the end of the movie. Uh, he thinks there's a reading of the movie where she might just go, I'm not going to be killed by this prick and <laughs> I'm going to survive. And uh, But you could also argue that she's killed by Megan Blair's uh, Feldstrom at the end of the film. And then that, in in a sense, is a very, very moral judgment that perhaps, I don't know, she was, the, the, the organization she was putting together was becoming too much of a monster to allow her to get away with something on that scale. What's your, what's your take on that? So, I mean, the organization will definitely survive. Roman is presumably her silent partner, but he's definitely her partner. He definitely, you know, will find some other Patsy, frankly, possibly Fran, who knows, but there'll be someone else who will become the public face of the organization so he can keep it going because it's too mm. valuable not to. Um, and of course, she'll be a martyr and uh, and your man will go to prison and that whole family tragedy will be sort of complete. I mean, obviously, there's a storytelling elegance to it and a, you know, a sense of divine retribution and the past coming back to haunt you. I, I, I kind of like it. I, I kind of think it works, but that might be the fact that I just hated her and I was okay <laughs> with with that outcome. I didn't ask Jay Blakeson about the fact that it's it's not just male on female violence at the end of the movie, but it's the guy who specifically threatens her at the beginning of the movie and she says that thing if you you know, like you you quoted earlier on, Terry, that, you know, you know, essentially if you, if she says if you come near me again, I'll I'll rip off your dick and balls and beat you to death with them or something like that. Mm. But he's the guy who who blindsides her and, and comes at her was that was that a uh, an issue for you guys i i like the i enjoy a circular narrative i can't lie so i enjoy yeah. the yeah. fact that it, it it's neat i like helen i love the fact she got shot and i am definitely reading <laughs> that she died so thank you for reading yeah. that for yeah. me, Joe i mean <laughs> i think i think the thing with the with the reading of this as male on female violence is she feels like the person with all the power in that mm. situation. She was the person with all the power in their earlier encounter. And while she takes that feminist line with him, I don't 100% buy it because it doesn't... Mm -hmm. I, I, yes, he's appalling. Yes, his, his words at that point are gendered. But he is the person who has been 
done wrong by and and it, so it doesn't feel like the typical situation he's the one innocent in this movie yeah in a, in a, in a yeah. sense and the damage is still done right the damage is still yeah. done because his yeah. he says explicitly my mom died alone in that yeah. care home because she wouldn't let me see her and i think helen's right she it's emblematic of so much more than one woman because the damage has been done. His mum died alone. He will never get that time back with her. He's probably going to go to prison for the rest of his life. Yeah. The company will continue on. I think she's kind of collateral damage. And there's, I don't see it as any big judgment. I think from a storytelling perspective, it is satisfying that there is some kind of justice somehow. But you sense it's a much bigger construct in which she was just a tiny part, mm. really. I mean, yeah. I do think, you know, people have been kind of trying to read this as a sort of a feminist Peace, and I think, uh, given that speech that that Marla gives at the start, and and points out that his language is gendered, and he's he's particularly angry because you know she's a woman. She he she says, I don't know if that's the case here, and and therefore I don't know if it if it is a f- if it's a feminist text in that respect. I feel like it, you know it's just, we can certainly discuss it as a feminist movie in terms of her character, but I don't mm. think that that guy is representative of male violence on women because. I think he would have been as angry if she had been a man. I think he would have said similar things if she had been a man, because I think the real issue that he was concerned about was not being able to see mm. his mum. Is it because it, it, she's frequently, and I think throughout the entire movie, the smartest person in the room? And for mm. example, she doesn't um, she doesn't resort to that argument with Roman, and she doesn't resort to that argument with the uh, the the lawyer Dean either. So, is it a case of as the smartest person in the room, she immediately figures out the buttons to press with this guy, which is to to turn it into a gendered argument with something that he has no comeback for? Whereas with with Dean and Roman, she decides to go into it down a different route. That's maybe fair because also in court with him already, she impugned his motives, um, mm-hmm. and that was what really mm. undid him. Mm. Rather than you know sticking to the idea of not letting him see his mum, she said, "Well, you caused violence last time you came to visit. You're trying to, you know, save all her money so you still inherit it in the will." That's what kind of broke him in court. That's what really upset him. So I think it's. Uh, it's going for people's weak spots because he doesn't, I think if he is a decent guy, let's assume for a moment he's a decent guy at, at, at heart or, or at some point in his life, being accused of that gendered violence is an, is an extra kind of way of hurting him because he doesn't want to mm. see himself as that yeah. guy. So I think it's quite specific, but I don't think it's the kind of moral of the film because I, um, I don't think she does represent women who are uh, attacked by men that way. No, she's an she's an arch manipulator, mm-hmm. and as you say, she can read every single scene. She knows exactly how to get what she wants, how to exploit people's weaknesses. She really has an eye for where that person's vulnerable spot is. And I think part of the discussion around her and and the feminism is because we're not used to seeing women like this on screen. If she was played by a man and she was a male character, none of this kind of dialogue would exist. Um, And and I don't think he, at the beginning, like he's the one you have sympathy for. Even when he's being aggressive towards her, you immediately feel sympathy for him. I just think we're so, it's so devoid of seeing women like this who are just purely manipulative, who aren't driven by past trauma, who aren't driven by, you know, typically feminine tropes that have have pushed them to the edge of becoming a super bitch. Yeah. Mm. I don't, I think she's just a brilliantly 
manipulative, awful human being. Um, and that's just what she is. And I think she could be a man and she'd be exactly the same. Yeah. And we applaud that. We applaud the brilliant manipulation. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, but we're also glad she got shot. Just to be in the yeah. safe. So just, just, just to make sure. Yeah. Okay. We're good. She's a bit like, it's a bit thank you for smoking at times. You know, she is part yeah. of the system. She's propping up the system. She's everything that's wrong with the system. But remove her and it doesn't fix the system. And interesting enough, she doesn't tend to use her sexuality in a way that's a, a, a classic uh, female villain from movies past might do. You know, thinking, for example, as as I mentioned with Jay Blake and Rosamund Pike, uh, The Last Seduction, Linda Fiorentino's character in The Last Seduction, who's all about her using her sexuality to outwit those dunderheaded blokes that she's uh, she's with. Uh, or Kathleen Turner in in Body Heat, or if you want to go back to any number of, of film noirs from the from the forties and fifties, uh, and I thought that was really really interesting as well. I think I think it's kind of a card she has in her in her set if she needed it. You know, she dresses beautifully, really really beautifully, and it is form hugging, bodycon kind of stuff. Uh, so she could, if she needed to, I think, turn it on a bit. She certainly turns on the charm with people on several occasions, not sort of sexual charm, but just general charm. So I guess it's yeah. it's a thing that she can play up if she needs to, in the same way that Terry was saying, she just do- goes for whatever people's weak points are. Maybe she would use it in the right circumstances. But you're right, it's absolutely not her default and it's not something that she uses unthinkingly because she wants to come across as professional, measured, you know, the, the sort of the person on the higher ground all the time who's just looking out for what's best for you guys. Mm. And I think she enjoys using fear, you know, mm. how she is with the care home manager. She could use any any manner of techniques to get him to do her bidding in the home, um, make her life difficult. And she just goes for whenever she can, she just goes for straight cold fear. Yeah. You know, when she is tied to the chair, you would normally run through, as you say, your kind of list of strategies for getting yourself off that chair and not to be killed. And at no point does she kind of simper, beg, does she try and soften herself? Does she try and appeal to any better instincts mm-hmm. he may have very deeply buried? Mm-hmm. She just kind of goes, she she digs in and continues to be hard and continues to be cold and continues to kind of front it out. And she thrives on that fear. And I think that's present pretty mm-hmm. much throughout the entire film. Yeah. She'd rather die than demean herself, I mm-hmm. think, by yeah. by stooping to such base arguments as please don't kill me, please don't kill me, I've got so much to live for, or or anything else that she, you know, like you might say in a situation like that. All the stuff that I would say, mm. basically. <laughs> <laughs> you have said, I've heard those oh, things. Yeah. Should we talk about Rosamund Pike then? Should we talk about how great she is in this movie? Because I genuinely think she's better in this movie than she is in Gone Girl. 100%. Yeah. Hundred yeah. percent, and and obviously there are parallels, and people have talked mm. about them with Amy Dunn. You know, the Bob for one thing. The narration is very close to obviously the cool girl speech, um, but I think she is a far more interesting character. Mm. And I think this is her at her very, very best. Like every bit of nuance, every bit of tone is handled, and even when actually the script. And the direction goes a little bit loopy. She is fully in control of every single beat of this movie. I think she's yeah. fucking amazing. That scene in the in the convenience store after she's after he tries to drown her is unbelievable. You know, she's just you know she walks in bedraggled, soaked to the skin, freezing. You know, and and just takes charge of the situation. It's it's unbelievable. She's yeah, she's terrifying in it. She's really good. Yeah, she's so great in all those the, the scenes. Uh, the 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 scenes that uh, I've mentioned already, but 
you know, in that scene with Chris Messina where they both stop playing the game and, you know, he's chatting to her in, his, in, a, in her office. That's so great. The scene with Roman in the quarry is tremendous. Mm. The scene where Diane Weist calls her a crock of bangly bang. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a film about masks and in, in many ways and about masks falling. And sometimes when you, you know, she drops a mask and you get to see the real Marla. Although I'd argue there's, a, no, there's, there's two real Marlas. There's that real Marla and then there's the real Marla who's with Fran, you know, who's mm. a slightly different, slightly warmer human being who actually gives a shit about someone else, which is such a rare thing for her. But she's so good in those scenes. And the, the, you know, it's, it's again about being the smartest person in a room. And the, um, you know, every scene, every great dramatic scene is about power and about c- control of power and control of the scene. And she's so good at, at dominating these scenes with people who should have a much better hand than her. But this interests me when you say there's one or two real Marlas, because I think she's just reinventing and repackaging herself in that moment with that person. So even with Fran, you think? I think I think that warmth is all about she's her partner in crime. She would find it much harder to do what she does, the detail of it, some mm-hmm. of the heavy lifting without Fran. And I think it's it's about her presenting the person that the other person wants to see. I don't get the sense there is a real Marla. I think every single iteration is the real Marla. Oh, that's exciting. That's interesting. Because I, I, I think the scene where she comes back and she finds Fran passed out on the floor and about to be killed, and you actually see real panic in her face, I don't, and her, and her voice, and she saves Fran's life. I think that's someone who actually has made a physical connection with someone else who we should also stress that Fran is a terrible human being also. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like she's the conscience of the movie particularly, but I think she has made a genuine real connection with Fran and is terrified at the thought of losing her. That's my take anyway. Uh, yeah, I think that's true, but I think that's only one of the Marlas. So I'm kind of oh, with both Mar- of you. Can I Ooh. can I agree with both of you on this? Of course like, you I, can. I, I think sure. Terry's right. I think those are all Marla. I think... Um, I think she is a scary bitch and she can bring that side to the surface and she is, you know, a, a charming manipulator and she can bring that side to the surface. But I do think she also cares about Fran and she can, you know, she does show that when she doesn't have to, when there's no one else watching. So I think there is something genuine there. But yeah. See, it's a bit what we're led to believe, right? Especially if you look at uh, women through film history and mm. if only we had somebody on this podcast who could talk to us about such a thing but we are used to there being Secretary, I'm here <laughs> we, we are used to there being a reveal when the real warm softer woman steps forward mm. and that's not what I think he's doing in this film what Joe Blakeson's doing in this film I think there isn't a softer more feminine real version of Marla I think she she iterates herself over and over again for whatever the situation presents and and that for me is actually quite radical in some respects mm. is that you know the hard bitch is as yeah. much the real Marla as, as the soft girlfriend who goes oh actually I don't want you to die I'd quite like to run away with you interesting I paraphrase <laughs> yeah <laughs> but this is absolutely right I think we are still at a stage in film history when it is still radical and surprising and interesting to find these anti-heroines like it's still a rare rare thing to have a female character this kind of complicated and unlikable and unapologetic and cool also I don't think mm-hmm. women very often get to play unreservedly cool and that is so it does still feel completely radical to 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 have someone like this and and I think people do have a little bit of trouble kind of processing it sometimes because it's so not what we led to expect 
It's also radical in, as you mentioned there, Hell's Bells, uh, anti-heroines as well. Mm. And Marla and Fran are partners, lovers, and then later towards the end of the movie, um, married as well. And I have seen some criticism of the film in terms of what happens to Marla at the end being a, yet another example of the trope where there's bury a lesbian relationship in a movie. Is that what it's called? Um, bury your guys. And yeah. Bury your guys. And then one of the women or men in the relationship gets gets killed slash punished for being gay. But I, I saw it like um, a bit like Ammonite, which it doesn't share a great deal of DNA with. <laughs> but, and, and with God's Own Country, which is it, it so happens that she is in a relationship with a woman mm. and Jay Blakeson, it doesn't seem to me to be making any particular point about that, isn't part of the normalising of, of same-sex relationships as much as um, uh, heterosexual relationships, that people in films, it doesn't have to be the narrative driver. It doesn't have to be the thing that's causing conflict. That's a source of tension. I just took it that she was in a, a relationship with a woman um, and that was kind of it. And as you say, they're married at the end. Um, and then she dies, we presume, a death because she's a dreadful human being. Yeah. I, th- I think if there's judgment in her death, it is not her sexuality that is being judged there. And I think you really have to... Um, I, I think that's a reading that the film doesn't support because I don't think I don't feel any judgment from the film on her sexuality. I absolutely feel judgment on her behaviour. We don't have a lot of time left. That's my bad because I got to leave soon to do an interview. But uh, Terry, you said at the beginning that you didn't think this film was perfect, and there were some things you wanted to pick it up on. Uh, what are those things? Well, I mean, for me, it was really the last third where I just think the tone veered a little bit there was there was a lot happening in that last third and I loved the pace of the the first two-thirds of this film the pace the propulsion I was like in for every beat and then there's a mad franticness in in the last bit and and this is kind of nitpicking I have to say and not everything felt fully in control and some things were kind of hinted at and then dropped and then not explored properly and it just lacked for me the cohesiveness you know the whole bit with Roman and then you know when she when she drugs and I mean the whole thing kind of unravels quite quickly and there's a lot happening and a lot of strands happening and a lot of action action happening in a very short period. But as I say, quite honestly, I was so all in by that point that I just went along for the ride. I just completely allowed myself to get swept away and just went with it. But I I think it it doesn't feel as controlled at the Mm. end as it does at the beginning. Every single word and movement is under Jay Blakeson's control. You can feel it. I wonder if that's a deliberate thing is the, you know, because even though Marla is very much in control of the situation, she's still improvising wildly at the end, whereas everything she does in the first hour or so of the movie is mm. 100% planned and reinforced mm. and there no not, nothing can take her by surprise. So maybe that's a that's a maybe that's a deliberate thing. I don't know, but yeah, mm. I have seen some people say that you know they, that they felt the movie loses focus in the second half. I think it's really interesting that it becomes something completely different from the, the yeah. from what the first hour promises, which is you know this really sharp, wittily written battle of of wills and wits in and around a courtroom and uh, an old old person's home. I would say perhaps. Jennifer, who's a really interesting character, she perhaps gets sidelined a bit towards the end of the film. Yeah. Not even perhaps, she does com- yeah. get completely no, sidelined. Does. I, yeah, I think that's a shame because I'd quite like to see her encounter with Marla afterwards. I think that would be interesting. Uh, 
And, and I, the one thing I will say for the second half of the film and, and the change in tone and pace, which I entirely agree with Terry on, is it did mean I had no freaking clue where this film was going. Yeah. And that is a rare thing in our profession because we see enough films that you're always kind of like, no, I feel like they might be doing this here. No idea in this. I mean, the Parasite is the last one that I felt this sort of unmoored by um, in a good way. And uh, and yeah, I really, really enjoyed that that fact in it. Yeah, and it, it, and I think it actually you're right. It is that as it unravels and the action picks up a pace, and 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 it is a shame in the respects of you know think about that scene in the care home where um, she's like doped up to the eyeballs, Jennifer, and she says, and she just looks over and there's that beat, and she says, "I'm the worst mistake you've ever made," and that smile gradually creeps up her face. <laughs> the amount of of heavy lifting that's done in that scene just through a few words and exchanges and the way they move together and some of that gets lost i think in the mm-hmm. in the mad action orgy i'm going to say of um of of the last bit and and that's probably why she's not as essential i just i mean mm-hmm. i could have watched her as this character all day long i just thought she was <laughs> superb mm-hmm. and terrifying absolutely terrifying yeah. It was yeah. like Gollum, that moment. It really was. It was just this shift, you know, so yeah. good. Yeah, a really good point. Uh, and mm. what about Dinklage? What about uh, Peter Dinklage as Roman, who's, again, I think he's tremendous in this. Yeah, I, I think we've we've seen him play bad guys before, um, but I, he's a particularly nasty dude in this. And I, th- I love the fact that even just as you're sort of inclined to have some sympathy with him and think, okay, well, you know, maybe he's a mafia boss or something, but he clearly loves his mum. You know, they bring in the photos of the women who are drug mules for him and, oh, yeah. they lost three in the latest batch. And and he's like, oh, okay, that's that's good. You know, I mean, he's, a, he's, he's even worse than Marla. He is yeah. terrible. So so I like that they don't and, and Peter Dinklage doesn't give you any reason to root for him either. I think that's uh, that's a very strong decision. Yeah. And of course the, the fact she outwits him at the end as mm-hmm. well, because I was slightly when I saw it for the first time, I was like, Oh, it's just turned into a thing where she's oh she just killed him now. But um but no. Uh, not at all. It was uh, it's she. She used her smarts, her moxie. Hang on, is this a spoiler special for moxie now? I don't know. She, she and she finally got to do what she wanted to do, which was to use money as a weapon, as a mm. as a bludgeon, the way that real rich people do. But anyway, speaking of real rich people, we gotta leave. We gotta go. I gotta go, folks. I gotta go use my money as a weapon. <laughs> How far do you think I'd get? <laughs> uh, uh, Lewisham? Not Lewisham. Far. Yeah, I'm not even sure to get to Lewisham, quite frankly. Uh, but that is it for our I Care A Lot spoiler special. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Thanks as ever for subscribing to the spoiler specials. Uh, keep them peeled. Falcon and the Winter Soldier weekly episodes coming your way very, very soon. And uh, of course, the likes of coming to America and Greenland and Ammonites on the on its way and Zack Snyder's Justice League and it's oh it's all happening it's all kicking off at some point I will sleep but anyway until we meet again until a auspicious occasion until then it is goodbye from I care Squadcast name I care a lot I couldn't give a fuck Terry White <laughs> bye goodbye Terry White goodbye it is goodbye from Ho. Didn't really think about this, did you, Helen? I didn't. I didn't. No. no. I should have gone for a weast infection. Weast infection! <laughs> Toodaloo, anyway. Toodaloo. It's uh, goodbye from me, C. Hewitt. See what it is, like Jay Blakeson, but I would C. Hewitt. No. And yes, I know that means Jewett, but don't, because that's what I, people called me at school, and I 
I now have killed them all. Uh, anyway, that's it for me. I'm off to share a donut with Peter Dinklage. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Bye bye. 